0: everybody we're back this is uh, Dorothy's place this is Elias Krem and here with me is Pete Davis hi everyone so got some got some things to talk about today they seem all kind of weirdly related i don't know what it is maybe i didn't get enough sleep but it seems like somehow we always come up with these things that seem distinct and then as we pick a book we pick a project we pick an interview Uh, you know, all these weird threads start connecting. But anyway, I'll try to I'll try to keep that down. Um, (laughs) So we can just sort of start in Pete, you want to do you want to do a group first?
1: Yeah, I'll start with um, a group and a a theory that explains the group, um, which I hope people can learn, uh, uh, take insight from, which is there's a wonderful group in my neck of the woods of where I'm living now in Boston called City Life Vida Urbana. It's the same name, City Life, and then City Life in Spanish, Vida Urbana. Um, And it's a nationally renowned uh, group of housing activists um, and I've went to a meeting and what's special, these meetings are incredible and I get why everyone talks about them and why they teach organizing to other groups around the country. What is there's an eviction crisis in America. There's been a major eviction crisis, especially since the housing crisis um, in uh, a couple of years ago, um, coming up on 10 years, I guess, soon, um, Is uh, which is... Um, and the way that i at law i 'm a law school student now, the way you usually experience helping out with an eviction crisis is you give individual lawyers to people, so I was in a housing clinic and I was someone 's housing lawyer to help them make arguments when they 're getting evicted that could delay their eviction or cancel their eviction, or if it works, you know get money from their landlord in the end and turn the tables on their landlord. What city life does, which is a really great mechanism for um, for a civic organization is they say, we're going to provide you with housing lawyer, volunteer housing lawyers. But the deal is you have to sit through one organizing meeting to get to the end of the organizing meeting which is a housing lawyer um, and so instead of everyone privately meeting in a room with some schmuck like me um, and then like getting their very particular issue addressed and then going home and then maybe having another issue they hear from other people in their same neighborhood that are that are having similar problems and they're invited you know they don't have to um, they just have to sit through the meeting that's it but a lot of them are inspired after the meeting to say I'm not a Alone in this, and I'm going to get my help for my specific issue with a specific per, um, uh, person with a specific skill, but I'm, I might also join this group that will not only you know fight for me in court, they'll also do rallies and marches and occasionally have babysitters, occasionally have um, different programs, and it converts kind of a specific social service into Um, wholesale justice and community building. And I just think that's a lesson that every social service can learn from, um, which is that we can't solve these problems by just kind of doing the specific one-on-one solutions. We have to start um, working on learning that other people have similar problems and that um, the heroes are going to be each other and not necessarily the social service providers. Um, And uh, there's obviously tensions with you know, sometimes someone doesn't want to be part of a movement. They just want legal help. But for the vast majority of people, um, and they should be able to get help without having to join anything, but um, the, for the vast majority of people, they've gotten a lot of benefit from mixing individualized social services with um, community building and ho- what Ralph Nader calls not just retail justice, but wholesale justice. So a uh, shining star of that is City Life Vita Urbana. Uh, it's clvu.org, dot org, and they have their whole history, their whole stories. Um, and if anyone's in Boston, come to a meeting. They're open to ev- anyone. It's amazing. Um,
0: wow, sounds good. That's great. I will check that out. All right. Uh, naturally, in a somewhat related vein, <laughs> um, a book that came out a couple years ago by a guy named Jeremy Beer. Uh, is called The Philanthropic Revolution An Alternative History of American Charity. Um, This is a book about the difference between traditional older notions of charity and what has become big philanthropy. So this is a very interesting uh, subject in a, a controversial area but he's making the point, Jeremy's making the point, these are two different things with two different ends really. So modern philanthropy, what we're talking about now is a, a kind of a, a technocratic or certainly a technological and sort of a globalizing effort that uh, is aimed at times in creating various kinds of social experiments. And Beer as a historian, Uh, goes to some effort to show that those experiments, you know, eugenics and other such notions, have not always worked out very well. Uh, Beer, by the way, is a kind of uh, a Wendell localist. And so his critique has to do with the fact that the local knowledge, what James C. Scott calls the metis uh, kind of practical local knowledge, is, you know, obviously... Uh, something that cannot easily be captured in these larger philanthropic uh, projects. So uh, Beer is also good in a way on what you might call the theology of this and what charity used to be, the kind of accompanying, accompaniment of the poor in a Dorothy Day sense, uh, as compared to what it has now become. He traces the loss of things like fraternal societies. I think, Pete, you and I have talked about this. Amen. Right? Back in 1910, yep. uh, one in three American males belonged to a fraternal society, 13 million people. In 1930, there were 35 million people who were using this as their means of life insurance, health insurance, local clinics, orphanages, you know, all kinds of stuff. So so the sort of organizational um, uh, mistake here was to go for naturally A goal of bigness and centralization, which turned into a kind of prejudice against the local and the rooted. Um, So Beer is uh, very readable and uh, very interesting in mapping out uh, this uh, history and in trying to underline why... Uh, this traditional notion of charity, the kind of Dorothy Day sense is one that had great power, particularly because of its personalism uh, in addition to its uh, localism and why there are a handful of groups out there that are trying to, in response, recover uh, that older sense of charity, but a very good book. I,
1: I love that. I'm so glad you recommended that Elias because you know, it's, it's, charity has become this, it's become subsumed inside of like another consumer choice you can make. You know, you can go buy this couch, then buy this car and then like choose this charity and feel good about this and write the check when it used to be something that was, you know, a routine part of daily life and um, how we spend our time and how we spend our money and how we gather our information. You know, these are all pillars of things that have moved from routine daily life membership, personal, to distant, one-off, you know, consumerist. And so I'm so glad there's a book out there that uh, that analyzes that pillar. Um, so that's great. I just added it to my queue. I hope listeners do too. The queue gets longer.
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny. It, it is related to the whole, um, you could say the whole suburban experiment or or the loss of social capital, the growing isolation. Um, the, the objects, quote unquote, of our philanthropy are, you know, faceless. They have no yeah. immediacy. And therefore, you know, we, we know that Dorothy was criticized because she didn't have the goal of eliminating poverty, quote unquote. Dorothy's goal was uh, surprisingly to many people to, to join the poor to be among the poor, to accompany the poor, you know, which is a radically different notion of uh, what we're about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I
1: think some lefties are worried that charity, you know, calls for charity and philanthropy are called a cut government because it's been used so cynically as the alternative to say Medicare or something. But, um, but I actually, I just think it's, you know, they're totally not mutually exclusive. And in fact, probably, you know, people like, as you can see from the life of Dorothy Day, the more brittle calls for national security, economic security become when the people calling for them or the constituencies that were fighting for them had no personal experience with the people that they were helping and that the people like Dorothy Day who had the personal experience of a personal charity and care and love were the ones that were most, had the most fire in their belly to fight for the large scale things too. So
0: um, so I think, uh, I think you can fight for both. So... Okay, we're going to be talking to uh, Professor Carol Sultan. And Pete, you're very aware of this guy and and brought him up to me. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about him before we actually get him on the line? He
1: is a professor from Maryland who is a uh, democratic theorist. And he had the two reasons I wanted to bring him on was, one, you know he care. Uh, one is he is one of the co-founders of the civic studies movement, which is a group of people try a group of academics trying to uh, develop an emerging discipline inside the academy around um, studying how hope how to make civic life thrive and how to make people feel more civically empowered. Um, and it's a very hopeful uh, group of people and. Two specifically, him among the co-founders. Though we should bring on all the others too. Um, uh, he especially works with Peter Levine at Tufts, uh, who is a great civic theorist. Um, uh, is uh, is that he is tied to our kind of founding movement, which is he's uh, he is himself Polish American, and um, and uh, and so he has a specific uh, uh, insightful perspective on. Uh, the solidarity movement in Poland. So um, I thought he'd be perfect for. Uh, he checked enough boxes. You know, sometimes you know, once someone checks, you know, two or three boxes in the Dorothy's Place checklist, got to bring him on. <laughs>
0: cool. All right, we'll bring him on right now. Okay, everybody. Thank you. Okay,
2: dialing. Hello.
0: Yes, uh, Carol. yeah Good morning. This is Elias Krim with Pete Davis
2: right good morning
0: hi 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 carol
1: so nice to talk to you again right hi Pete.
0: hey great thank you for uh connecting with us sure yes uh let's see i I explained a little bit about uh, this podcast in my note i think uh pete and i uh, started it up about six months ago or so and uh we are interested in all sorts of conversations about community building and uh, Pete alerted me to your work, and we thought it would be a great fit. Um, there's more to talk about than we, can, than we can get into, half an hour, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, since, uh, since this was Pete's thought, I'm happy to let him maybe ask the first question, or, or if you would like to begin, Carol, you can do that also. We don't have any particular structure about how we're going at this.
2: But the the format is, you have some questions, and... uh, We do, yes. Okay, yeah, so let's start with that and and, and see see where we... All right.
0: Pete, how about I let you uh, lead off?
1: We are talking here with uh, Professor Carol Sultan, um, and I have known uh, Carol for a while. We met at a uh, wonderful civic studies conference uh, that... Tufts University holds, Um, and I wanted to talk uh, to you, Carol, here in Dorothy's Place, because you have two uh, interests that are relevant uh, to what we talk about here on Dorothy's Place. One is the Solidarity Movement and taking inspiration from the Solidarity Movement in Poland, and the other is the study of uh, civic organization, civic revival, and community building, which you are part of a vanguard movement in. Uh, in the civic studies movement. You're one of the leaders of the civic studies movement. Uh, So let's get into civic studies later, and let's start with uh, solidarity in Poland, uh, which we've talked about before, um, and I'd love for you to share with our listeners uh, your experience with it. I know you're from Poland, and I'd love to hear about how you experienced that firsthand and how it's informed your work.
2: Uh, Well, I haven't, I did not experience it firsthand. In fact, it's Kind of important in my kind of intellectual biography that I experienced it secondhand. That is, I was at the time in the U.S. The the, the time in question is 1980-81, mm-hmm. then extending through the 80s uh, when Solidarity was suppressed but never never died, and then reviving in 88-89 uh, as part of the miraculous year 89. But all that time I was uh, in the United States, so. Um, I, I have a kind of, um, I, th- I think my, my uh, the, the way I think is influenced by a certain level of frustration that I wasn't able to be there.
1: And why, uh, why are you frustrated that you weren't able to be there? You know, a lot of our listeners might not know all the uh, facts about uh, solidarity, and I'd love to hear your story from your perspective about how you first started sharing about it and how it resonated so, so with you as a politician.
2: So the story, actually, is, the story is not, not, to say it's a story about solidarity is to shorten the time frame. <laughs> it, it's it's a story about uh, development that really started in early 1970s in, in Poland um, and uh, started also elsewhere in slightly different forms So its a uh, complex story. Um, but I'll, I'll stick to the Polish version. Um, and that was, um you know, the, the, the development of a new idea of, of how to respond to uh, the sort of late totalitarian uh, society that uh, uh, communism was then. You know, post totalitarian I mean, it was already in its pathetic stages. It's no long, it was no longer the totalitarianism of Stalin, mm-hmm. which was uh, you know uh, massively killing people. Uh, this was senile uh, uh, post-Totalitarianism, but still, uh, you know, there were In the 60s, the the thinking of opposition was about uh, how to influence the communists uh, at the top, uh, so different forms of Marxism were developed. Um, All this really failed in uh, 1968, and by the early 70s, uh, there was an opening for new kinds of thinking, and the new kind of thinking uh, converged on building an alternative society from below. And the the the, the, the usual verbal form, this is uh, uh, described in, in English as civil society, but actually the Polish version literally translated as civic society. And I think that's really important. That is the inspiring part was not that it was civil, that is to say um, nonviolent uh, outside the state. That was part of it. But the crucial thing is that it was civic. That's, um, engage certain ideals that in Poland went back to the Renaissance republican forms that uh, Polish history had in you know 16th, 17th century. So, so that was you know in in the 7 in the early 70s that began uh, to be articulated and organized uh, civic society, and so. the the one new idea was civic society. The other new thing was um, a new way of thinking which became much more human rights centered. That was part of the the refocus on human rights which allowed two kinds of people in Poland and I would say even in Warsaw to converge and became to become part of a, a, a kind of community. One were the people who started as Marxists who started uh, more specifically as communists. Um, and their idea, so these are young communists, and their ideas sort of collapsed in 1968 when it became clear that communism is really more closer to fascism than to their ideas. Hmm. So it was a personal tragedy for them. They lost their fundamental commitments. They lost the meaning to, to, of life. And on the other hand, they are independent Catholics, Uh, which were always in opposition, but a very different kind of opposition. And these two communities converged in the 70s, and they converged on ideas of promoting human rights and on ideas of civic society. Interestingly, uh, one of the inspiring um, texts or sets of inspiring texts at that time was the the German um, Protestant uh, theologian Bonhoeffer, famous for his opposition to Nazism and Mm -hmm. uh, a victim of 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 Nazis in the end. So I have been talking a long time. So let me stop and and see if you want to redirect my (laughs) story.
0: Just a quick question, Carol, my my reading about the history of solidarity uh, includes uh, something I came across that suggested uh, there's a kind of misapprehension among some Americans that solidarity was an uprising that had to do with poor economic conditions. It really wasn't about economic conditions, was it? It was about something much wider um, than that, because after all, the welfare state was still more or less in place. Uh, this was about the nature of work, the nature of society, uh, you know, the nature of the regime and so on.
2: Right, no, I, I think, well, look, I mean, the economic component is very important, so, uh, uh, well, one cannot get away from that. But yeah. the, the economic component of what would be the question, I think if if you want a sort of one-word one, one word answer, which you may not want, but if you <laughs> want a one-word answer, <laughs> is dignity. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it was about uh, human dignity, and that has its economic aspects, but it obviously has its its um, other, let's say, political and uh, moral aspects. mm
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm i was thinking of uh, gerald Beyer is the historian that i've read on this you're you're probably aware of him Uh, i think he's he's in maryland also uh but i think he he underlines this point about uh the uh, the dignity component
2: right no i I think gee this is so human rights are also about dignity at least the version of human (coughs) rights that really emerged after world war ii the central idea is inviolability of human dignity so um that uh, you know, human dignity, human rights. That became um, that uh, I- again in the 70s. That became a kind of focus of of these groups that I was talking about, and it allowed also. These are mostly groups of uh, you know intellectuals in Warsaw, but it it also could be the basis of of uh, a kind of uh, movement out toward workers. So mm-hmm. in the 70s, there were various protests of 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 workers and. And these intellectuals, who otherwise would only be interested in talking to other intellectuals, actually uh, made a point of, of lending a hand uh, to the uh, to the workers. Hmm. So again, I think one can uh, trace back the idea of human dignity uh, uh, as the source of that uh, lending of a hand.
1: How um, there's there's been a you know some communitarians. Um, and uh, labor left folks and uh, Catholics, uh, Catholic social justice folks more interested in civil society have noticed a tension in human rights that it's a very individualist uh, justice mindset. You know, in America, it was kind of Jimmy Carter who introduced human right, who popularized, uh, repopularized human rights as something that fit snugly with, kind of a Western individualist idea and there was a mixing of capitalist liberty with individualist human rights and so it gave it a social justice sheen which but obviously this is a very complicated history but I'd love to hear how you've seen that tension play out between the more community-minded subsume yourself in a higher cause and a bigger (laughs) community embed yourself in um, in the destinies of others with the human rights idea that is really about like the inviolable self.
2: Oh well, I I, I think the, the 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 way I think of it is is that there is in fact a debate, uh, sometimes a sort of intellectual debate, but sometimes a political debate between the uh, human dignity based uh, idea of human rights and human liberty based idea of human rights, and obviously the human dignity based idea of human rights would incorporate. Liberty, but it would be broader. That I think was the point of shifting to the language of human dignity uh, post uh, World War II. In uh, yeah, in, in, in the way it plays out in American foreign policy, that it, you know, it's it's the liberty aspect that is uh, emphasized. But if you look at the so to speak global documents of human rights, not only do they recognize social and economic rights, but they also recognize cultural rights. Um, and so in, in general, this notion that uh, one dimension of human dignity is the uh, access to sources of meaning and purpose in life um, is, I think, reflected in, in this larger conception of human, uh, of human dignity and then a longer list of human rights, so to speak.
0: Carol, I'm wondering, uh, what does the uh, sort of melancholy or tragic history of solidarity and the the end of that movement, what does that have to teach uh, the project of civic studies, maybe as a way to get into that topic now?
2: Right. Well, um, so I, uh, can I again sort of broaden the, uh, broaden the, the topic in, in answer? Uh-huh. Um, Go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we have. I, I, I'll just give a kind of sketch that is in my mind of, of of the big patterns of history since World War II. There have been periods of of kind of uh, activation of history and periods where history uh, uh, yes, quiets down. So the immediate post World War II period, amazing new things were yeah. uh, were yeah. done and even more were attempted. Uh, around sixty-eight, seventy-two, the sixties. Well, we know about that. Um, so solidarity, even though the high point of solidarity was 80 um, it's it's sort of extends to 89. And what mm-hmm. you're really then talking about is what happened to solidarity after 89. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, and and that you know we you can mark it with you know <laughs> individual decisions by individual people how this civic aspect was abandoned uh, because uh, what was embraced and that was always there is this kind of um, the goal of becoming a normal country yeah so becoming a normal western country um, <laughs> and and this civic component didn't really quite fit and there, and there were of course complex more detailed politics around it but so so every the, uh, every period of uh, of activation then stops uh, and this is this the, what we're talking about is this stopping of period of activation, um, it's. I would say it. It has the appearance of being tragic, except when you see this periodic revival of activation. Hmm. So then it maybe loses some of the quality of being tragic and and can be um, made consistent with continuing hope. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, the the next pe- period of opening is 2008. You know, Arab Spring. Uh, election of uh, uh, first uh, uh, african-american yeah. presidency of the United States yeah. and so on yeah. uh, and again it certainly collapses um, so I think the I, I, so here here's where we come to civic studies for me and this I really speak for myself for me well, one of the tasks you know for someone like me within civic studies is is to try to articulate the the um, the larger project these moments of greater hope somehow exemplified but exemplified in a partial way. So they were vulnerable in part because uh, they exemplified it only in partial ways. So we need to learn from them, combine lessons from them in order to articulate sort of a larger project uh, that would be, uh, I don't know to put it really grandly, a, a project for a Renaissance of modernity or uh, a Renaissance and reformulation <laughs> of modernity which has been through, you know, 20th century crisis continuing into 21st century.
1: Uh, I um, Allow me for our listeners to put forth um, the way I think about civic studies, and then you can respond um, with what I get wrong from your original conception of it. Um, and hopefully that'll result in um, some clarity on what it is. So I've always thought of civic studies as this cousin of economics in the sense that Economics is applied sociology for the sake with a certain set of assumptions and goals about what you want to achieve with that sociology. So, you know, for example, there are some firms that do better than other firms. There are some economies, national economies, that do better than other national economies. Perhaps we can apply the study of human interactions in those firms and economies to find out how some people can do things better Um, some, you know, central bankers can do things better, some businesses can do things better, and others um, uh, would do things worse. And in that study, there are some assumptions, such as we're trying to maximize growth, we're assuming that there's a market with a certain set of assumptions about the institutional structure of that market, there's certain ideas about individual homo economicus you know, uh, that's profit maximizing, and So that happens there. Civic studies is this cousin that says there are some civic groups that do better than others. There are some civic environments and ecosystems in a country that do better than others at bringing people together, achieving public goals, building and deepening democracy. We're going to test which ones do better or worse, come up with uh, theories, you know, structures, both specific, micro, macro, quantitative, qualitative, to help certain civic groups do better, and certain uh, democracies do better to promote an ecosystem of civic groups. Um, what, it, what, how do you take that as one of the founders of civic studies?
2: <laughs> well, so the first thing to say about civic studies is it, it has to be uh, pluralistic. Uh, there, there, it has to center on a contest of different conceptions of civic studies. And um, I like very much your your framing um, I, I would put it somewhat differently, but not that differently. Um, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't put civic studies as a kind of parallel uh, to economics and hence uh, a cousin. I would uh, the, the, f- the form of civic studies I would be especially interested in developing is the kind of civic studies that can actually be a little more imperialistic. So uh, a generalization of economics hmm, good,
0: um, good. <laughs>
2: um, uh, rather than a parallel. Um, And that means intellectually that uh, we need to develop a kind of micro-civics that would incorporate (coughs) the economic models, rational choice, and so on as special cases. And then also a a, a kind of macro civics that would uh, uh, incorporate concern with uh, large-scale economic development into some larger conception of development. Um, But uh, again, this is, uh, you know, others would have other uh, other conceptions. um, I mean, uh, let me just throw in at this point uh, one kind of phrase we use a lot in defining civic studies, which uh, your listeners sh- sh- should should uh, should hear, and that is it's a uh, you know emerging intellectual community, emerging interdisciplinary discipline, whose goal is to develop ideas helpful to citizens understood as co-creators of their worlds. So the crucial phrase there is ideas. Helpful to co-creators of their world, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think both your, con- your your conceptualization and mine fits that in both cases fits it in an ambitious form. And I think one of the battles within civic studies now is is between those who are content with civic studies as a kind of applied science, doing small tasks. <clears throat> uh, that may be a bit of a hostile description because I believe in civic studies not as an applied science, but a As, as, as if you like a science or a discipline that really is capable of developing big ideas and having big thoughts about uh, human development and I think that's what we should focus on so that it can take its place among the the intellectual (coughs) communities the disciplines of modern culture so to speak on its intellectual merits and not just because it helps citizens and and hence helps democracy it needs to do both in my view Carol I,
0: Carol, I wonder if you're aware <clears throat> of the um, efforts going on <clears throat> in Western Europe. <clears throat> excuse me, around the notion of city making. City makers seem to be uh, various kinds of neighborhood groups and associations uh, who are, for example, in northern Italy, uh, creating social co-ops and sometimes going further in uh essentially uh, kind of remaking their own civic structures um you know in a slightly kind of uh, anarchic uh productive anarchic way is there any of that kind of activity that you think um resembles the goals of a project like civic oh, studies uh,
2: i'm sorry it, it, it's not just that it resembles i would say that's exactly an example uh-huh. of kind of activity okay. that is the sort of civic yeah. Uh, co-creation of yep, their worlds—that yep. uh, civic studies uh, uh, means to support uh, intellectually, so to speak. But intellectually mm-hmm. and also practically, I mean, we do have uh, uh, in 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 our minds, in one form or another, the idea of unity of theory and practice, which you know mm-hmm. one should take away from the Marxist form, where the practice was revolution, to the civic form. Mm-hmm.
0: Go ahead, Pete.
1: Uh, One thing I – I'll throw it to you, Elias, for the next question, but one thing I'd just like to point out with this is civic studies, one, is trying to become – trying to emerge as a discipline, and, like, there is a dream one day where you send your sons and daughters to college and they say they're majoring in civic studies or you're getting a PhD in civic (laughs) studies. So that's one very special thing about it is that it's not just – you know, a hobby. It's it's. We're trying to have it emerge as one of the major disciplines in school. Um, and the second thing is that it's it's. I I don't want to. It's very. It's it like in hoping to be an academic discipline. It's taking that task very seriously. You know, it wants to have journals. It wants to have peer reviews. It wants to have debates. It wants to have symposiums. That's not all happy talk, but also trying to develop some empirical like empirical validated theories that become consensus within civic theorists that, um, about the way that civic life fits together. Um, not nec- just like with any other discipline, obviously it wouldn't all be homogenous. It will not conform into one single vision of the universe, but it would be able to say that some things appear to be more correct than others. Um, and, uh, and that's very exciting. You know, it's, it, it wants to be, um, it, it, it's it's very hardcore in its mission, I would say, and that's one thing that's drawn me to it. Um, Elias, do you have the next? Can, question? can I just uh, reinforce something you said,
2: which is which is the the emphasis on realism, right? So we we I, I sometimes describe civic studies as a, 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 a science of of human potential, real potential, and not just psychological potential, but situational potential. Huh. Um, but it's crucial to be realistic. So if, if, if uh, in, in our capacity of uh, developing ideas helpful to citizens, we need to make sure we are hope reinforcing. It has to be realistic hope reinforcing. So re- realism is a very big um, fundamental commitment. Uh, and that, of course, means in part just uh, your routine empirical research. That's how one gets to be realistic. You find out the way the world is, but you also look for. It's a distinctive. It can include distinctive forms of empirical research in that uh, investigating the potential of a situation is different from just investigating the uh, situation as it is. It still it still can be uh, realistic. You you look for resources available in a situation. Hmm. that can be brought to bear on the situation and uh, in, 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 in as part of trying to improve it, well, these resources may not have been brought to bear yet, but they are there. Uh, they're part of the community or part of the city or part of whatever venue of civic work you're engaged in. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask a quick question <clears throat> around um, what I, I'm feeling is a kind of kindred uh, effort uh, in the economic sphere. And that is the work of uh, Louigino Bruni and Stefano Zomagni toward articulating what a civil economy is from the tradition of uh, Antonio Genovese uh, in 18th century Italy. Are, are you aware of that, Carol? Is that, does that strike a chord in no, any way? No,
2: I, I'm not. So please uh, you know, send me the relevant references. <laughs> yes,
0: I, I think it's very much, it's a kind of recovery of civic humanism as the basis right. for economic uh, thought and so on, and it seems to me very apropos. But, yes, I'll see you. Right, no, I mean, that.
2: just from what you said, it's a, a absolutely, that. that's why it's, I mean, part of, part of the excitement of, of doing this is that the idea is, the original idea was that there are many people in many countries and many disciplines that are doing sort of this huh. thing, but yeah. they don't know of each other, so building yeah. an intellectual community is, you know, it's, it's, it's these steps, you know, you suddenly discover that someone else is is doing something similar,
0: right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I just love the idea. You know, we're we're we have a dearth of of like available publicly understood categories within civics or categories and tools. Like even just a group of academics that are trying to name categories and tools. So, you know, for example, um, I, I think about in civic engineering like. Uh, uh, in, in, uh, the purpose driven church, which is Rick Warren's, uh, like church building manif- manifesto. Um, he says that if you have a large group of people, you should have such as like a 14,000 person mega church, you should have small groups that tie people to face to face interactions that keep people coming to the, large group meeting of like the Sunday megachurch meeting, that's like a mechanism called like taking a large, you know, we don't have a name for it yet, but civic studies could study that and come up with it, of categorizing all the mechanisms that take but a large just, group just, just and then care people
2: in small that, groups. So, Sorry, I, I, I interrupted you, and as a result, I didn't hear what you said at the end. But I interrupted you because because what struck me is um, the, this the concept that immediately came to mind is a concept that the Bloomington School of Civic Studies as we would now say hmm. um, very much promoted <laughs> and that is polycentricity
0: oh yeah
1: Could you oh, just, look, not, oh, you, this is great we already are getting useful this is a useful t- concept
2: yeah there are multiple so, yeah centers. you're talking about a polycentric church I guess yeah
0: uh,
1: oh wow so <laughs> this is this is the magic of civic studies you know think of how what it would be like before economics, like the development of modern economic terms to talk about, you know, um, things like uh, uh, opportunity costs, things like diminishing returns. You know, Mm -hmm. civics needs phrases like this. Polycentricity, you know, now if that was spread throughout uh, the public, you could go to a group and we could be like, oh, I feel like our group is very monocentric and we're getting very... um, Big, and we need to become a polycentric group. And if people understood that, and you didn't have to, you know, that would be a success story of civic studies.
2: Hmm, Maybe a good. small success story, but it's yeah, a small, story. no. That's good. That's
0: good. <laughs> uh, Carol, I, I'm struck by a term you use, uh, and your colleagues use also, civic competence.
2: Right.
0: What yeah. is that?
2: <laughs> um. Well. Um, let me put it in terms of that uh, you know, slogan, developing ideas helpful to citizens as co-creators of their world. It's, it's the ideas and skills that would be helpful to uh, citizens understood as co-creators of their world.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so the question is, what would that be? And since I was uh, invoking the, the Bloomington School... So this is, um, you know, a, 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 I mean, a, a, now we would say a school of, of civic studies that was very much centered in Indiana, uh, uh, led by the Ostroms.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So Vincent and uh, Lynn Ostrom, Lynn Ostrom ended up with the Nobel Prize for that work. Uh-huh. So they, they uh, uh, like the idea of, of uh, polycentricity. Uh, they developed Uh, They didn't come up with originally, but they really developed uh, that idea and uh, all kinds of related ideas. But um, one can also identify two other themes that I think are relevant as examples here. One is uh, how to, uh, let's say, solve the problem of collective action. Um, So the, 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 the issue of how to get... Groups of people to do something together without individuals going off on their own. Uh, to to give a crude definition of problem of collective action, they very systematically studied it, and uh, that is studied uh, both in experiments and looking around the world at uh, you know how farmers solve irrigation problems collectively in Nepal and all around and you know uh, Renaissance Spain and so on. So they have this broad empirical research on um, uh, trying to learn lessons about how one can do it. So here is a challenge for co-creation. It's, it's hard to get people to, to do things together in a coordinated way. And that challenge we can um, address by developing certain skills, by learning how it's done elsewhere. So that's one aspect of civic competence. Another theme very strong in, in the Bloomington School is the, the, the cognitive limitations of human beings. Huh. So again, a distinctive challenge. We're stupid, or mm-hmm. at least kind of not smart enough. Um, and uh, you know a set of uh, heuristics and other kinds of skills uh, that overcome it again. A skill that is very important uh, to co-create part of civic competence.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's see. <clears throat> that point reminds me of, uh, I think, of a notion from the writer Wendell Berry. Uh, this, the limits, the cognitive limits, sound a bit like what some people have called an ignorance-based worldview, meaning <laughs> that we are actually uh, typically much more limited in our ability to understand the uh, certain process and realities, then we propose.
2: Right. Now, <laughs> let me well, that gives me an opportunity that kind of gives me an opportunity to, 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 to make an important point. Hmm. So um, the problem of collective action is often sort of exemplified by tragedy of the commons.
0: Oh, yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but uh, what the Ostrom research does is shift the discussion from tragedy of the commons to what uh, what Lindahlström called the drama of the commons. It's not always a tragedy. So it's a challenge, but it's a challenge we can overcome. Hence, sometimes there is a happy end, and sometimes there is an unhappy end. Mm -hmm. So drama of the commons rather than tragedy of the commons. With uh, cognitive limits, the same thing. Yes, we're a bit stupid, but we can overcome that. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we're not just... It's it's not... its it's It's hope undermining to simply say, uh, you know we live in a world of ignorance. Uh, we live in a world that is difficult to understand, we have cognitive limits, but we can overcome those challenges mm, yeah. and And the uh, idea is to really develop our understanding of you know, those skills and develop those skills in new ways. Ah. But you know both of these shift from hope undermining to hope reinforcing perspective, and I think it's crucial. That the civic perspective is uh, hope reinforcing.
0: Yeah.
1: I love that. Um, at, since we are a, um, a, a Christian solidarity, very heavily Catholic influenced um, podcast, I'd love to hear, and we started with solidarity as a movement, which was a um, Catholic influenced movement. Um, how... You know the relationship between Catholicism and civics, and how that's played out um, in the way you think about it. Oh well, uh, so, uh, be, and uh, and the uh, reason I bring that up, the reason I bring that up now is I feel like hope reinforcing is a specific uh, is a Christian virtue. Um,
2: right, and 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 it should be said <laughs> that I'm also practicing Catholic, mm-hmm. um, but but on the other hand, um, you know it would be a disaster if. Uh, you know, <laughs> civic studies became just a Catholic uh, sure. enterprise. Uh, I, I have noticed that in our summer institutes, you know, there is a rather surprising uh, rip of, of Catholics. But obviously, in, in a way, you know, this is... Uh, to be hope-reinforcing is not to be Christian. Mm-hmm. To be Christian is to be hope-reinforcing. As you yes, You can be yes, hope-reinforcing amen. without... Um, So, um, I mean, I guess my first answer to your question is a personal answer, but I find as I develop my version of of, uh, civic studies is I try to do it in a way that's really driven by both empirical research and other kind of intellectual uh, starting points that are really not Christian at all. uh, The commitment to science as a model for me is important, all kinds of uh, such commitments, but then what I find, uh, you know, with some amusement after I have this you know, new line of thought uh, that I think is really exciting and and uh, you know hadn't had that before, I step back and say, oh God, you know, here I am being a Christian again. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, for 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 me there is that connection, but uh, I I I, but it's a connection that. Somehow, in the background, I think it very much should be uh, in the background. Hmm. In if a way, it, like I'm like the tradition of natural law, this this should be accessible without revelation to right, reason alone. right,
0: right. And indeed, Catholic social teachings are not trademarked Catholic. Right. You know what I mean? The, right. the particular combination, I suppose, you could argue historically, has been Catholic. But subsidiarity and solidarity, these are not owned by anyone.
2: No, that's right. And and in fact, of course, subsidiarity has had an amazing uh, uh, career over the last few decades, way beyond uh, Catholic social teaching. I mean, solidarity, maybe it's a different story.
0: Right, right. Let's see. I I wonder if uh, any of this connects to what is going on. I'm just curious, perhaps it doesn't. Um, In Catalonia and the way there is a kind of uprising going on there that... I take it as a bit of an informed, sort of middle class effort, but do you do you see any strains of uh, this kind of thinking and what's going on there?
2: Well, so that's a complex story, and to really answer, I would have to know more about the details hmm. uh, of of what goes on. So there. It's, I mean, that, that goes for lots of things that are happening now that are civic uh, huh. and are potentially distorted civic. Yeah. Um, and, Kur- and Kurdistan so, and so on. Yeah. Well. <laughs> all right. So um, yeah, you know, I I spent some time. I I worked for Kurdistan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Right.
2: So so there. I I, I, I mean I I. I, I, I there's a clear, so there, let, let me uh, give the Kurdistan version, which is more <laughs> clear-cut on this. That okay. is, it's, it's, not, it's, it's in my mind clear that in, uh, in, in a world that's serious about ideals, Kurdistan would be an independent country. Hmm. Um, you know, Poland is an independent country, uh, and it used to be divided among three. Uh, Kurdistan is divided among yeah, three four uh it, it, it ought to be an independent country you know there, we, we live in a world where uh, guns matter and sovereign territorial states matter and so this becomes complex but um and and in, so in particular whether it was a good idea to have a referendum at this point hmm. uh, and, and so on these are all uh, in large part strategic decisions there's no question that an overwhelming majority of Kurds in Iraq, and there's pretty little question about Kurds elsewhere, although that's more hush-hush, um, yeah, I would want an independent Kurdistan. Um, so that seems part of what democracy is for me. But it is for me. It's not, uh, you know, it's it's obviously not for others. And uh, how that translate into, uh, translates into Catalonia um there is, uh, it's too complicated. I, I don't want to get into it again. <laughs> I, would not, I would need to know more.
1: Right, right, right. I, um, you mentioned to me once, and we can cut this from the podcast if it was something you didn't want to share publicly. But you once called yourself an Hungarian <laughs> Um
2: and
1: um, I. This this mixes with uh, two <laughs> of my uh, two of my interests. And one peace, is
0: he's been working on that ever since. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
1: and, um, one interest is, um, for those who don't know what Hungarian means, is this uh, hidden gem of a of a theor- philosopher, Roberto Mangabeira Unger, who I think is the greatest radical democratic theorist alive to today. <laughs> um, and I would say a man who wouldn't not argue that he is a man of the radical left and Burkian, a man who is conservative which is my second interest which is the overlap the potential of a left conservatism and how that's not a, a contradiction in terms even yeah. though publicly they would think that there is and I'd just love to hear uh, what you think as someone who once said you're interested in Hungarian um, what, uh what you think are the potentials for left conservatism and what that means to you
2: well, so f- f- first of all, I mean, if we're going to reveal our uh, our uh, you know hidden commitments, <laughs> I uh, you agreed that you also are an Hungarian. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think uh-huh. I am. So, I
1: think I am an Hungarian Berkian. it's yeah. yeah, an attractive so we, idea. We it's
2: developed the solidarity <laughs> of Hungarian Birkins, Um
0: The meeting of um, three, and
2: I'm very much uh, publicly committed to that <laughs> uh, to that combination, um, and. Um, I mean, uh, please come back if I'm not answering really your, your question. For me, the, the, the key to being <laughs> Hungarian, Birkin, is um, so uh, Unger, one, one of the wonderful, he, he works in these slogan-like phrases, and one of these slogan-like phrases is, uh, we need to take the idea of society as artifact to the hilt. And um, that's always made me a little uneasy because you know, the, the idea there is that society was an object I would prefer to say we uh, we should take the idea of human beings as creators to the hilt mm-hmm. and that would then involve co-creation and so on but if we do that if we really take this creativity idea to the hilt then I think we actually uh, uh, discover Burke because one of the yeah uh, uh, you know, there there are various ways to take it to the hilt some seem to me very partial so one way to take it to the hilt is, you know, let's all be Mozart. <laughs> uh, so the idea is, uh, you know, individual creativity. But it, that's not what uh, an Unger means. It's not what uh, mm-hmm. I want to mean. It's, it's a social, but it's social over time. The grandest example of human creativity, the grandest examples, are those that take place over time, where, you know, generations build on, on, on previous generations' work of, of creation. Uh, and that, of course, is exactly Burke. <laughs> now, oh, there is yeah. a way of oh. taking Burke in a different direction, but I think that, is, uh, the, that misses the creative component. But this is, this is the overlap. This is where, uh, for me, you, you, you can and ought to be uh, uh, a Burkean-Hungarian or an Hungarian-Burkin, <laughs> uh, very much committed to taking the, the idea of uh, human beings as, as creative beings to the hilt, so more than society's artifact, lots of artifacts, but also recognizing that to do that, one really needs to take seriously that this the, the largest co-creations are collective, not individual, and that they take over time. So Burke was exactly right.
0: Huh. Very good. Very good. Well, one final thought. Um, you mentioned uh, several times uh, Eleanor Ostrom. I cannot uh, forbear. Uh, mentioning that I have a daughter who is a junior at IU Bloomington uh, at the moment, a public policy major. And so I'm going to insist that she listen to this podcast and then immediately find her way to the Ostrom workshop. Uh, well, so that it, she
2: can... It, it, can, can I, I mean, uh, of course, the Ostroms are no longer there because they died. Right. yeah. And my understanding is that... Um, really the workshop has changed direction oh really
0: i didn't know that okay
2: um so i mean change and not let's put it this way the 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 strong civic aspect of the workshop i think is no longer quite so strong hmm. and i don't want to you know i don't uh, follow in detail the story here but you know there's a if you if you take these challenges like the problem of collective action you can study them um Without much of a civic perspective, most people studying them don't have much of a civic perspective. <laughs> what was really u- unique for me, and from point of view of civic studies, about the 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 uh, Lin and Vincent Ostrom is that they they this is you know a, a, a program of systematic empirical research among other things, but I- very much explicitly in the, in the service of the civic idea. And I I my sense is that's no longer quite. Uh, True, so that if I'm right, that means that, uh, you know, the moment the workshop was renamed the uh, Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom workshop, uh, uh, it ceased to be civic in the way that Eleanor and Vincent Uh, uh, Ostrom wanted it to be. In this way, like, uh, you know, uh, developments that are built on uh, various parts of nature usually are named after yeah, I mean, kind of, uh, you know, housing development. They're usually <laughs> named after the part of nature they destroy. <laughs> uh, true. <laughs> true. Well, perha- so,
1: perhaps <laughs> a young crim can revive. The <laughs> uh,
0: perhaps. At, at the perhaps. <laughs> right. No, but there are.
2: Right. Uh, look, I mean, uh, there's certainly. I. I it, it may not matter what the overall commitment of the workshop is now. It. It. It, it did. I think shift. Mm-hmm. There would still be people there uh, who are committed to it. Um, so yeah, um, yeah you, you uh, the, the, the message to your daughter should be search within and around the workshop for uh, yeah, uh, yeah. interesting uh, people and ideas.
0: Very good. Very good. If, she, if she will listen to me. I, that's a great idea. All right. <laughs> good. Well, thank you very much, Carol. This has been great. Uh, I, I think the uh, the first caucus of the very small group known as the Hungarian Berkians. Uh, was a was a complete success so
2: right right I'm, but we I'm need to we have just. a second caucus I believe.
0: indeed indeed yeah. so we and, can keep and i would say
2: part of the agenda is to expand the numbers you know numbers actually <laughs> do matter
0: three is
1: not yes. enough no that's right yeah the, the first insight of civic studies is more people
0: in right. your movement is better than less people in your
2: yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly that's that's very it's one of those discoveries we made no one has ever thought of it before no so. no
0: no <laughs> write that down write that down lovely <laughs> All right, thank you, thank you both. Thank Carol you, Carol. We'll be in touch. All right,
2: great. Take care. Bye. Appreciate it. Thanks.
0: Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.